Flashing in my rear view The sheriff said, boy, I should have known it was you You got 14 people in the back of this truck I warned you twice and now I'm riding you up I said, officer, what have I done? He smiled and said, boy, you're having too much fun Good morning to this another wonderful edition of What's New in Wagyu Again, my name's Stephen Wolf. I'm here to guide you through this lovely podcast for the day Today we've got a kind of an interesting take on Wagyu. So a lot of you don't realize this, but for years now that we've been kind of vertically integrating our Wagyu program here at Elite Western Wagyu. And by doing that, that included us picking up uh, the opportunity to have a processing facility. And every processing facility that, that's purchased or taken over or built has to have a quality manager at, at the helm or things just don't go well. Management in these processing facilities are what makes or breaks your Wagyu situation. You know, if you have problems, they're the ones that are going to have to take care of the problems. They're the ones that are going to have to look at the carcasses. And they're also the ones that are going to have to call you or other clients and let you know that there are issues with a carcass that you've brought in. One of their biggest responsibilities is managing expectations. So today, and further into the future, we're going to have what I'd like to call the butcher's corner. We're going to have the person who runs our processing facility, Lane Felstead, come in and sit down for the podcast and talk about his week or the things that he's done in in the last month or so, and the problems that he's seen, or heck, even if he's seen one of the best carcasses he's seen in a while. This is how we're going to go about educating everybody on the meat science side of Wagyu. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn over a little bit of time to Lane and he's going to kind of introduce himself. He's going to explain how he kind of got here and, you know, kind of what makes him him, the person who runs our slaughter facility and the, and the person who makes sure that my product, my end product that reaches my customers is always at its peak and best and, and most presentable form. Thanks, Steve. Anyway, like you said, my name is Lane Felstead uh, and I manage... Uh, our uh, our shop our shops called the grazing grind because other than the wagyu that we process um, for our own needs we also do custom cutting for other people in the community which includes uh, any of the beef um, pigs and also sheep so we have a pretty diverse we have a pretty diverse uh, <coughs> clientele but we mainly open the shop to meet our needs in the Wagyu market. My background is <clears throat> I was way out of the States for a couple years and I got back and and uh, he's a young man and got married and and started a, in a little uh, custom shop and uh, as uh, boning, boning and trimming and making burger and that type of thing and and I really enjoyed uh, cutting meat. And so at the first opportunity, I enrolled at Utah State Meat Science School in Logan, Utah, and, and went through that program. And while I was working there, or studying there, I also worked in a, a bigger uh, custom um, packing plant 
I graduated and then went to there to a a large uh, packing plant in uh, Hiram, Utah. And while I was there, I was fortunate enough to become the plant rover. We also were able to get on all aspects of the meat processing um, business from slaughter to um, working on the uh, the line where the primals, the primal line where the primals were cut to working in the hotel restaurant institutional cutting room to working in the sausage kitchen and also the cure room and so for a number of years I had a lot of experience in all facets of uh, cutting and processing meat products. From there I went into the retail industry and worked for various grocery stores um, as a retail meat cutter both in a full service uh, area and also in uh, the current uh, self-service where people just with meat cutters fill the counters and people buy their meat and and occasionally people would ask questions or have special needs so between all that experience I've been able to manage people I've been able to cut uh, with an expectation, a retail expectation, I've been able to work in all facets of the slaughter and packing house and also in the all assets of the cure um, with pork and uh, other cured meats. So that's kind of my background. I worked in those areas for a total of about 22 years. Um, and uh, and uh, a few years ago, I met Steve Wolf, and uh, we became friends. And as we uh, developed his Wagyu herd, um, it became quite apparent that we needed to do something different because the packing houses that we were using and utilizing had no concept of the value of our Wagyu carcasses and the way that we cut them and the roughshaw way that we get product back. It definitely wasn't what we were looking for to give our customers an end product. So moving on, another couple issues we ran into early on in the game was uh, it wasn't getting cows into the slaughterhouse, but it was getting our product back. You know, and that, and that kind of was hard for us. That's kind of the first hurdle that we had to overcome. The, the scary thing about that whole deal was it was easier for us to start a herd, build a feedlot, and feed cattle than it ever was to get a cow through the slaughterhouse. And the problems started running is that everybody figures that these cattle are identical to commercial cattle that they've been seeing over and over again. And the issue comes arise is that, as anybody who's ever raised Wagyu knows, that is a complete fallacy. And you'll run into some very big problems if you start treating these animals just like any other commercial animal, or, or even a registered product from the Angus or Semmental Associations. So the hard thing is, is everybody, you know, everybody thinks that, oh, this is, that's probably the easiest part. I would say that the slaughtering and processing portion of the business is the hardest part not only to manage but to make sure that we have a consistent quality product all the time and because of that it takes a really a lot of skill for somebody to break into this industry and that's why lane runs the shop like i can figure out business i can make things work but i i can't manage a shop like that 
you know, heck, I wouldn't know if they were doing stuff wrong until I got it back. And, and that's what we were experiencing at the other plants we used. The cool thing Lane has is the big plant that he was talking about that he worked in as a younger man was is now owned by JBS. It's one of the larger kill plants in our area. It, they really haven't updated it a lot from even when he was there. But, you know, it, it's nice to have institutional knowledge in a big production form. So, Lane, I, I, here's a good question for you. So now you've been doing this for a while. We've been, we've been doing our own Wagyu for two years. What is your take on Wagyu as a whole when it comes to finishing products that you see? That's one of the biggest um, question marks out there and one of the least desirable um, parts of my job is because everybody that um, raises Wagyu, they have an expectation that it is going to be very well marbled, very well, very tender, um, very aesthetically wonderful to look at. And as and as we find, um, most carcasses that we have, other people have brought to us, do not meet what their expectations are. And there's a couple things that go into that that are very vital is first is something I can't do anything about that's the animals genetics and how they're going to marble genetically and uh, the other day and I'll say other day it's been it's probably been six months ago we had an individual bring a uh, animal in and we we slaughtered the animal and and uh, <clears throat> cut into the, split it at the, at the rib and the loin, and that animal would not in the USDA standards grade as a select. It wouldn't meet those marbling requirements to even grade select. And this individual, individual was expecting prime plus and above. Well, it's really hard to tell a fellow that, you know, because of the genetics and maybe because of the way that you fed him, it isn't, uh, it didn't meet the expectations that you had. Um, that's a very difficult thing. It's disappointing for the, the animal owner. It's also disappointing for me to have to relay that information. Um, the other thing that people can do, two things that people can do, is make sure that their feed ration is proper. Um, we spent a lot of money in uh, developing our, our feed ration and um, talking to nutritionists and um, having them develop a ration that builds our carcass, builds the, the muscle, then finishes it off properly. Um, <clears throat> feeding, feeding is essential. Correct feeding is essential. Um, number of days on feed is critical. Um, we have our animals. We the third thing that's very critical is is getting a mature product that and don't don't shortcut the the time it takes to grow a complete carcass and get it and feeding it properly. Um, just last 
about two weeks ago we had an individual and and uh, he wanted to, to slaughter his animal and we told him you know you probably ought to wait another three to four months and you'll be a lot happier and and uh, they decided that no that they had a good feeding program and they were gonna cut it and and it turns out it probably needed another three or four months and they would have been absolutely it would have been an absolutely phenomenal carcass but it was average it was an average carcass um, and if you had a little more patience it would have turned into a very nice uh, Wagyu steer so I guess those are the three things you have to remember is genetics um, your feeding and your ration time and don't be impatient and feed him out till he reaches the maturity he needs to be to to produce a, a nice marbling well excellent wagyu carcass you know and lane's pretty lucky is is when we opened the shop we thought we were going to do mainly our own animals and what's kind of happened in the last couple of years well last <clears throat> year especially is that we're starting to see wagyu producers bringing us stuff from washington oregon nevada utah wyoming montana so pacific northwest wise we we kill a lot of animals for other folks and the problem always comes in is that everybody seems to want to shortcut things and i'm not sure why we haven't quite figured that out maybe it's because of the cost of feed right now uh, I, I don't know but you know cutting cutting corners will never benefit you in the end in this game you always want to have a completely consistent product and that starts not only with their genetics but with the way you feed so lane if you were to have to put your finger on one thing that people could do better that you've seen so far what would it be Feed the animal to its complete maturity and don't slaughter early. Have patience. So Lane cuts quite a few carcasses and I'm gonna let him explain to you the difference between Wagyu carcasses and conventional cattle carcasses and even F1 carcasses. They're, they are different. Um, and Lane, Lane's had to kind of figure out some, some tricks and hints to help his guys make it through a Wagyu carcass without having big problems. Number one is essential, especially with full blood or purebred Wagyu. The melting point on the fat is so low. It's, uh, it's going to be anywhere from... Well, the other day we had a carcass test out at 89 degrees and it started to melt point to all 96, 97 degrees on a, on a full-blood Wagyu. And so as soon as you start walk, working with that carcass, your hands are melting the fat. And uh, so we have to make sure that our cutting room is cold that it's colder than what, what we normally work at because you know it's not as comfortable to work in a a 35 degree cutting room as a 50 degree cutting room so we have to make sure that our cutting room is proper um, and the amount of and the amount of cover fat and things on a wagyu it just makes it more difficult to start the breakdown process and uh, 
and uh, and even cutting the cutting the caudal fat out of the internal part of the carcass is tough because there's so much of it and uh, even though it has a nice melting point it is pretty dense and so getting your guys to realize that and first of all number two because of um, some of the the fat issues and things sometimes it's hard to identify exactly where some of the some of the the bones are to be able to follow the bones to be able to uh, take certain uh, primals out like the chuck tender or the flat irons um, you have to know carcass anatomy pretty darn good or you can ruin or get into those uh, with your knife in ways that you really don't want to get into them with your knife and so those type of issues um, and then of course um, breaking them down properly so that you can pull all the primals out um, effectively with the least waste as possible so those are some of the some of the things that we run into um, the, the added cuts are hard too guys you know when we start dealing with wagyu we have cuts that that conventional butchers have never even heard of zubatons are the big one right now that you ask a regular butcher about that and they're going to look at you like you're a crazy person and it took us what it took us a while to how, learn how to, to do some of this stuff and thankfully uh there are YouTube videos out there. Yeah, and here's the funny part, guys. So depending on if you're selling to a chef or not and where the chef's located and how they're trained, here's the big one, how they're trained. You get a guy who's more European trained, he's gonna start asking you for culottes, but a guy who's been trained in the United States or in the South, they're gonna ask for picanha. Same product, same top sirloin cap, but it has two different names. And, and that's right there where you guys are gonna get in trouble when you start selling outside into the chef's market or even to some of these people in your local area is they're going to ask for some products and you're going to be like what on the earth is that and that's the, that's the thing so we have we have chefs and they say you know I want this or I want that and you say well explain to me where, where it comes from and what it is well baseball sirloins <laughs> yeah you know and and uh and some some other things that you know is really strange, and because we don't know them by that by the United States standard, which is really a it's a it's a good standard, so it gives you a good uniform name for most of the cuts, and but uh, people want you know the one shift the other day says I want ranch steaks. Yeah, that's right. Ranch steaks. That's what they cast for. And uh, so you try and tell him what, you know, what he means by a ranch steak. Because I've had people call ranch steaks different cuts. Ranch steaks. Um, the Domenico I um, sometimes called a ranch. Or the full cap on rib steak. Some people call a Spencer or a ranch steak. And and what ended up being the ranch steak that he wanted ended up being the boneless boneless part of uh, of uh, the back ribs underneath the chuck. He just wanted those 
taken off the the bones taken off that and made into boneless steaks and he was calling that the ranch steak and that's because that's what he puts on his menu and that's that's the hard part right there is sometimes these chefs they have something on their menu that nobody knows about and and i did a really mean thing to lane about a year ago i showed up to the butcher shop with japanese cut and standard and threw it in his lap and told him to learn it <laughs> and uh, that that was interesting and the japanese they do cut different like the zebutons i mean those are it's a terrible little piece of meat to get at um it's tucked up right underneath the shoulder blade and it's only about oh three inches wide and about six inches long but they call it the little pillow that's what that means in Japanese and it's a fairly um, tender piece of meat um, it comes out of the chuck it's not a extraordinary piece of meat but that's what these people want and you have to learn how to cut different things that uh, that they want and it's uh when we went to japanese standard the reason i brought that over is we couldn't figure out what they were doing with certain things we were getting asked by some japanese culinary cuisine folks that they wanted certain things i was like well the only way we're going to learn this is have this and, and the one thing me and lane both learned real quick when the japanese split a carcass it's not in the same place as ours so when everybody's like oh i have a japanese a5 carcass well, it's split at a different rib set. And I will tell you right now where they're splitting it is a higher marbled piece of the meat than where we do in the US. It's, it's split deeper down in, into the chuck. And, and, and I say the chuck because that's the way you're going to the shoulder part of the carcass, you know, so they're cutting essentially dead center in the middle of the ribeye. And I think it's a great place to measure. It, it gives you a full aspect of what you're actually getting so i find it interesting that most people here in the states when i talk to them they're splitting their carcasses at the at the united states standard split point and that's where they're doing all their grading from oh and here's a little secret the u.s doesn't grade anything but prime choice and select so you're gonna have to figure out if you when you're killing these animals how to best relay that that information you can go with a japanese grading camera you can go with grading cards i found a lot of times we don't sell based on grade we sell based on the chef's visual appearance and we tend to make more money because of it so lane what's the number one pitfall that we've experienced in our time doing wagyu our time doing wagyu mm -hmm. as a no, as no, breed no. or as, as as a whole as a whole well as Steve explained uh, getting a packing house to do what you need with your wagyu sometimes with how they do things um, that communication breaks down or they're just too lazy to want to do things the way you ask them to do it either way um, you get some very expensive uh, outcomes um, we had a, a packing house um, decide that they had a vacuum packer that wasn't a very new and efficient vacuum packer. Or maintenance. Or maintenance. And uh, they had a hard time keeping the vacuum cell in large pieces of uh, 
primals, especially if they had bone in them or they were a little misshapen. And so what is the fix on that? The grinder. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we had uh, probably one of the most beautiful carcasses we've produced so far. And we pre-sold the briskets, mind you. Yes, we pre-sold the gr briskets, and they ended up in the ground beef. And we had those uh, briskets, if I remember, four briskets that they were willing to pay us $1,800 for, something like that. So so four briskets, $1,000 a piece. So okay. we lost four grand that day. And these were all going to a big barbecue competition down in the south in Texas. Like, the guy had come, he had... He had hand selected his briskets so that he could win a competition that he'd been working towards for years and the hard thing was was replacing those briskets yeah so it cost us a lot more than four thousand well and i'll tell you right now we ended up replacing them with a very like very similar product but now not only was i out for briskets but now i had this concern every day of my life what was going to happen to my next carcass at that facility and so, and those things happen. And then... Uh, the problem is, is with this place, it happened multiple times. It did. Not, not to us, because we were a little more mindful. I made Lango down during their cutting days. But we had a, a, a client that came to us that wanted some stuff, and we just couldn't do it. So we, you know, we had explained to him, there's another option. There's some places down here, or you can wait. And he decided to go down, and guess who, was, who else's briskets got ground up? <laughs> and 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 that and that is really the essence of how these packing houses don't understand the, what your needs are as a wagyu. And another thing is, and it wasn't a real comfortable thing going into somebody else's cutting room and supervising his people and him and make sure that things didn't go wrong and uh, I can tell you he didn't appreciate it he didn't appreciate it but I also wasn't going to lose more money so poor Lane sometimes gets to be the bearer of bad news for me so and then there was something that I didn't catch I can't remember exactly what it was but something went into the ground beef that shouldn't have and i'm not saying that mistakes don't happen right you know a year ago lane gives me a phone call and goes jeez i messed something up today and i go what'd you do he goes i may have had to cut well, i may have cut your tri-tip and i go well that sucks did you do both of them <laughs> and uh remember when i said that you have to be really a really good at anatomy on these cattle and things well it it outfoxed me it was better at anatomy that day than i was but i'll tell you this we haven't we haven't uh lost a tri-tip since well and, and the difference is too is lane was able to trim around where he cut and it was an okay it, w it was a third the weight it should have been but it was still a tri-tip right it's not like he threw the whole thing in the grinder and it was just gone. You know, and that's the difference between skilled butchers and butchers that just work there because they don't care. Uh, another problem that me and Lane have both experienced in other shops, because at some point in time I started having Lane go and make sure that where we were going was an acceptable place. 
cleanliness in coolers has been one of my the things that scare me the most in a lot of USDA packing houses and and they're going to say oh yeah we're, we're passing inspection and they are because they've got an inspector there that does pre-op but the state in which they keep their coolers is not acceptable to me uh, I'm a guy that doesn't really like bad smells that's why our our plant doesn't smell like a meat shop doesn't smell like a butcher plant it smells like an office you can walk in you walk in the office it's an office you know you go in the cutting room you're gonna have that protein smell of meat that's it is what it is that is what's being cut in there but it doesn't smell like rot or decay and that's been really important to me and and as a, as a professional meat guy I'm not really a butcher I'm not really a meat cutter anymore I'm, I'm kind of a meat guy and and bacteria is the number one thing that's going to get you in trouble quicker than you can shake a stick at and so if you have odors coming from your from your um, hanging room and you walk in there and it knocks you over well you know there's something not right going on there the floors aren't clean, the drains aren't clean, maybe even, you know, the walls haven't been cleaned in a while, there hasn't been a good active sanitation program to make sure that the surfaces that may, the USDA may or may not um, pay attention to, and that's the, under the um, responsibility of the individual inspector, and uh, well, and sometimes they don't think those things are as important as a molecule of meat on a stainless steel part that's going on your saw or those kind of things. And they'll nitpick the little things to pieces and let the real problem that uh, giving your place a problem um, go without any scrutiny. And one thing we've done is is we do not allow long-term dry aging in our cooler. We don't do it. We've walked into a couple coolers and they've had stuff dry aging and it reminded me of, of a Wookiee being hung from the ceiling with the, the amount of, of growth of, I don't even know what you want to call it, fungus, I, I don't know. It, it grossed me out to the point I just turned around and walked away. Well, I was fortunate enough in in my uh, experience at uh, Utah State to be involved in some studies that we had aging versus um, or natural aging versus uh, coolers with a lot of uh, circulation. Well and this is gonna move us into this great next topic that I like to call hang time. Oh uh, okay. You know and, and me and Lane end up talking a lot about this to a lot of people. So this is important for you guys to really listen to this because Lane, when he was going to school, this stuff was being researched, being utilized. So he got to see some stuff that none of us will be able to see because the early research has already been done and passed us. Yeah, this is back in 1977. And, uh, 78. It was 78, I'm sorry. But anyway, um, box beef, they were just starting to develop box beef, uh, as a viable break them down vacuum pack them cry vacuum meat put them in boxes and and send them because they wanted to uh, reduce shrink 
which is pennies and dollars in the Packers process, but they wanted to know if it really affected them, the tenderness of the beef. And so they did some studies about uh, hanging um, carcasses 14 days, 21 days, and uh, cutting them pretty fresh. And what they found out is that in the high... Um, so, so when a cooler doesn't have, you know, pre prior to this, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, coolers didn't have high circulation. They hadn't quite figured out how to make these coolers have uh, ventilation in the way we do now. Um, you know, now, you know, our cooler we have now, we have two units in it. They've got four fans a piece, plus we have two ground fans and a recirc fan, right? You know, and, and that's how a cooler's circulated today versus in, in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, you know, the, the problem comes in is a lot of the stuff that we see and hear is from research or from people's grandparents, 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 though I, I have to have my animal hung for 21 days. And that's exactly right. So what would happen is as these uh, coolers circulate the air, um, it pulls the moisture out of the carcass. Essentially, you're dehydrating it. Yeah, you're dehydrating it. And so for the first five days of um, hanging, it will shrink the carcass 2% a day for the first five days and 1% a day every day after up to 20 days. So if you have a, a carcass that's hung 14 days, you've literally taken 18, 19% of the carcass, almost 20% of the carcass, weight out through evaporation and they found that any benefit that aging um, gives to an animal is more than compensated for with uh, dehydration because as the carcass ages it dehydrates the water cells come out of the the meat and the meat becomes less tender and so they found that a carcass aged Three to five days is, there's no significant in tenderness loss than a carcass um, age 14 to 16 days under the same um, conditions. And some of the weird stuff that we hear about all the time is, is oh, we're wet aging. We're wet aging. And I, I have, I don't do it. I think it's not a good, a good thing. We're in the pro, we're in the business of providing fresh meat and fresh wagyu to people. That means we keep it fresh. It means it gets frozen quickly so that it's fresh. I would rather send a chef a frozen piece of meat than have it sit in a bag or sit in its container, sitting in, in a, in a, aging cooler. That just is just a bad way of doing business. You're selling a product that you know isn't as tender as it should be at this point. And this is why. You know there's a problem because you're aging it longer. And you open one of those bags and, Steve, it smells. It's terrible. It smells. And so you keep your meat out on the on the counter for as however long it is and just to evaporate or yeah that's the smell and then by keeping it on the counter you're adding more bacteria adding more bacteria and bacteria is the bane of uh, the meat industry it really is so 
I tell my people that come in and they ask me, I explain this, and I basically sometimes a little mean, I'll say, so do you want your meat fresh or do you want it decayed? And that's really what aging is, is you're decaying a product. And here's a problem I have, and I tell people all the time, and Lane hears me tell them this, and they usually get mad at me, and then go talk to him about it. If you have to dry age your Wagyu because you're worried about tenderness, you're not doing something right. Period. Either you have a piss poor genetic profile, you have a piss poor feeding profile, or you just have the inability to properly manage and, and have a good animal husbandry technique. And that's the truth of it. There's no beating around the bush. You're the one at fault. You're the producer. And our end users, when we sell it to chefs or other people, you know, I tell them, you know, if you want to... Because we vacuum pack everything. So if you want to take it fresh to your shop and to your kitchen, and if you want to put it in your coolers, and if you want to age it for another month or six weeks or whatever you want to do, that's up to you. But I'm going to sell you the product fresh because you're the, you do not want age product coming out of my facility. You want it or fresh. Any, or any facility. Exactly. Period. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and here's a trick that I think that's interesting to me that we're getting played by Australia, especially in their Wagyu product. They claim they're sending fresh product. Me and Lane have seen it. It's frozen. It's frozen when it gets to us. And whether they let it thaw out at their facility and then sell it to the chef, that's a whole nother ball game, right? And when they say cooled, they mean it's froze. It might not be froze like a brick, but it's definitely crystallined out. Yeah. And it, it does the same thing with, uh, with the cells of the, the animal. It's, uh, whenever, you, whenever you do freeze or crystalline it, or whatever, you're going to have some cell rupture. And that's why as they as it gets older in the bags why more fluid appears more and more and more it's because of self rupture within the cells of the pacific piece of meat and we've had to learn a lot of this stuff the hard way there's not a book out there <laughs> maybe i should write one right maybe that's what i think my next thing's going to be let's write a book on the pitfalls of owning a butcher shop that that specializes in wagyu you know but and, and lane we do some cool stuff every once in a while we get to do steamboats yeah you know that's where you take a whole round and you uh pretty much cut it so that they can put this frilly thing on the on the shank meat and they bake it all in one huge piece so it's a whole leg and then they slice it off like a cool buffet style. Uh, it's all about show. But when you use Wagyu, at least you know it's going to be good and soft and tender and supple. Um, so, Lane, what is, what is my least favorite thing that you guys do to Wagyu? And you're going to laugh because it makes me laugh, too. So, uh, we decided one take time we, we killed a Wagyu. And remember, guys... We take Wagyu home and eat it. We kill a whole cow for ourselves every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't go to a restaurant anymore because they don't have anything as good as what we got I have at home, right? So, anyway, Steve said, be creative. Give me as many cuts and as many ways as you can in this Wagyu. And I assumed he realized don't cross the path of no return. No, he, he, didn't, he didn't stipulate that, so... Anyway, 
a couple things that we did that I'm really happy with and he's half happy with. When we started cutting some carne asada. Oh, I love carne asada. Out of uh, Wagyu. Yeah. And, and that's been huge, guys. And that's that was a home run. That was a home run. And another home run t- to me, because I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, is back in the day, my mom would go to the grocery store, and they had these little things called minute steaks, and they were basically a little chopped steak with a pad of bad butter in it, so she could throw it in the frying pan and cook it and give us some protein, because she, you know, she, she was a single mom and worked two jobs. and. And she had to do fast things for that most of the time to make sure the kids are fed, right? But anyway, I love these little mint steaks and stuff. And so I went and I made some cube steaks Ugh. out of the bottom round of a Wagyu. And he, he came in and he was so upset. But you know, for chicken fried steak and uh, for a Swiss steak and stuff, they were so wonderful. But uh, that's still kind of in his book, going past the past the pal, and uh, we we have a fun time arguing about that from time to time. But it was wonderful, and, and it really was. And here's the deal: I was only upset about it because they gave me like ten packages of it, like two packages I could have agreed with. But then I found out what was really going on is Lane just needed to store cube steak in my freezer. And so, yeah, so anyway, so we were both happy at the end. You know, one of the products they did do that I thought was interesting is they did do what was called a breakfast steak. Uh, I really appreciated those in the mode that if your wife or you were busy and you needed a nice little thin, quick steak, it wasn't like carne asada. It was probably half the width, but it, it cooked up well and it was a good product, you know, so... Those are the things, like, if you guys are are thinking about opening a butcher shop or you guys are working with a butcher or, or just starting the process, you need to think about what your customers are wanting. We used to do a lot of burger, and now we're doing less and less of it. Yeah, I mean, we did lots of things. We took, like, the, the mock tender in the chuck, and we took that... Uh piece of gristle out of the middle of that and we put it in half and then we cut it and made rosettes uh we took we took the um took the lifters off the um off the ribeyes off the ribeyes and we rolled them and tied them and made uh rolls let's talk about that just for a minute for some reason and it confuses me to all get out when people are are taking their caps off the ribeyes and here's the problem with it. If you don't own your butcher shop, do you know where those are going? They're usually they're they're probably going with the butcher and his uh, partner on the on the Clearwater River with their friend the guide, and they're having those for lunch. Or, or they're ended up in the ground bucket. Or in the ground, right? yeah. Uh, and and I hate to tell you guys, you're losing out on a large piece of meat that's that's very tender and and a, it's a good piece of meat and it's a good resell item, right? You know, I'm starting to see lifter, well, not lifter meat, but rip, but cap steaks is what they're calling them. And, and they're two different things, but they're from the same place almost. Yeah. That's, that's the hard part, guys, is that if you don't have some way of going in and controlling what the butcher's doing, you're losing money. And the easiest way is if you're just going to make them for rib steaks, make your rib steaks lifter on. Leave them big. People yeah. love big ribeyes. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that that's the that's the secret there. 
here's the other thing that you guys need to make sure that is happening at the facility is there's some form of lactic acid or or acid reduction being put on or an acid for bacteria reduction being put on these carcasses and there there again depending on the facility you use you not, really nothing, nothing's going to help because yeah. it's such a dirty cooler to begin with and, and that and that's that's the the big takeaway from today is is there's there's big things at every shop that's a problem. Ours are usually our employees. Yeah, because you can't watch them all the time, and they don't mean to do harm, but sometimes they just get a little lazy, right? Complacent is the biggest one. Yeah. They, oh, why do we have to do this every day? Let's do it every other day. And then Lane catches them, like, this morning, and they get to do deep clean today because they didn't do the appropriate amount of cleaning yesterday. And so, you know, and and you, you do those kind of things because it's easier for them to take care of it on the front end than have to come back on the back end and then yeah. do everything because they know the boss isn't happy with them. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of this podcast today. I'm going to have Lane leave you with the best piece of advice with dealing with your butcher. Communicate, communicate, communicate. And I would say stop by during the cutting process. That that you should always be welcome in that cutting room when when they're doing your beef. And you are you may have to be wearing a coat, you may have to be wearing a hairnet, you may have to comply to whatever standard that cutting room has, but you should never not be welcome there. Yeah, and be sure that you let your butcher know, your meat cutter know, hey, if there's a problem let me know quickly. Um, let me talk with me how you want to resolve it. Now, that doesn't happen all the time because maybe you're unable to be reached. But before, when you give this guy the commission to cut your beef, Tell him, if there's any problem whatsoever, give me a call. If you cannot get hold of me, use your best judgment and make it so it's the most valuable it can be to me without putting it into ground beef. And make sure they know what your business is. Because if I'm a hamburger stand, that's very different than if I'm selling to a high-class restaurant in D.C. Right? Correct. So I'm going to leave you with our first piece of Wagyu advice. I'm going to put it in on every single episode. And that piece of advice is, your butcher should be your friend. Your butcher should, should have as much vested interest in your product as you do. If this is not the case, I would be looking for a new butcher shop to be part of or be in or, or take my animals to. Because I never want to be in a situation where the butcher is a, scared to call me because they had a screw up because the new employee did something he wasn't supposed to. And for me, I'd rather him call me and tell me we had a screw up, this is how we fixed it, or, or how would you like to fix it, than find out when I'm getting my stuff and trying to get it to the people it needs to be at. Yeah, you don't want to be going through your boxes and th go, where's my briskets? 
especially when the dude's supposed to be there in 45 minutes. Luckily, we have we had a few extra animals, but that's just a, it's just an experience I never want to have to go through again. So, with that, we're going to leave you for this episode of What's New in Wagyu. We hope to see you again next week. Never saw you leaving coming, but she felt it went in late. Memory button stuck on beat, mind skipping like a wrecking machine. Over and over that goodbye scene keeps spinning in my head. It keeps a holding me, and ain't no baby about it to hurt. Keeps cool.